special welcome if you're visiting, checking out H2O for one of the first times. It's great to have you here with us as well. You know, there's been a lot of people that have been coming in and out of H2O, and so we want you to know that we know it takes a step of faith for you to come here, and we're excited that you're trusting us with your Sunday. We are excited to have you here. Uh, I'm excited to jump into uh, this third week of our Exodus series. If you can't tell, I am a little bit sick uh, again today. This We kind of got a running theme. If you teach here at H2O in the last couple of weeks, you have to be a little bit sick, and uh, so you might have to bear with me just a little bit. Actually reminded me of something I read this week. It was kind of funny. Um, the, the thing I read said this. It said, do you know why women have to go through childbirth and the pain of childbirth? Uh, the reason why is so that they can understand what a man feels like when he has a cold. <laughs> All right? And so I probably, there's a little truth in every stereotype, right? So I probably fall into that just a little bit. Uh, I may want to complain a little bit more than I maybe should when you have a cold, but uh, we are excited to be together today. I want to, uh, again, welcome H2O Akron, too, and as we jump into this series of Exodus, I want to give us a little bit of a recap of where we've been. We talked about this epic story of the book of Exodus because uh, you have to understand the background and the backdrop of this story to know where we're going today. Uh, the story of Exodus is like any great story. The first week, we, we kind of compared it to Star Wars, where if you don't know some of the subplots and some of the characters that are going on, you might be a little bit lost. So just let me give you a quick update and recap of where we've been in this series of Exodus. We started off the first week, we went all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, which is really the beginning of the story of Exodus, where God uh, gives this promise to this man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Uh, God promises Abraham and his wife, who are in their 90s and who have not had any biological children yet, that he is going to make a great nation out of their descendants. And he tells them this, and of course Abraham and Sarah think that God must be playing some type of cruel joke on them because they're in their 90s. There's no way that he could do such a thing. And yet God does that very thing. He gives Sarah a child, and through that miraculous moment, God starts to put into play his plan for his people. And so fast forward a few hundred years later, God turns that one child, uh, Isaac, into this great nation. And now there's about two million people, Israelite people, that can be traced back to Abraham and Sarah. But the problem that we find ourselves in in the book of Exodus is that this great nation that God is starting to build and this promise that he is giving to this people, these people find themselves in a position of slavery. As they started to grow, as they started to multiply, they were in Egypt. The Egyptians were threatened by, by the multitude of the Israelites, and so they start to put them into slavery. They start to do population control. And so now God's people who have this promise that God is going to do amazing things through them, that God is going to bless every single nation on earth through them, now find themselves in slavery. And God also promised them a particular land, a particular place. And instead of actually being in that land, they find themselves themselves in slavery. They find themselves in pain. They find themselves just struggling through existence. And so many people start to question and doubt, is God's promise really true? Is God's plan actually going to work? I mean, can we actually trust God? Well, last week we talked about how God called Moses. And, and God looked at Moses, this man, another man who is pretty weak by the world standards, uh, a man who was in his 80s at the time. God comes to him and says, Moses, I'm going to use you to free my people and to accomplish my promise and my plan. And Moses, just like Abraham, is like, no way, God, you must be thinking of somebody else. Moses, we think, might have had a speech impediment. We 
we know for sure that he was afraid uh, to go and talk in front of people. But God says, no, I'm going to use you, Moses, to free my people and bring them into the promised land. And so that is what we're going to see to start unpack together today. You see, uh, the place that we're going to go to today is we're going to see the extent that God will go to keep his promise to his people. The, the passages that we're going to look at today, we're actually going to cover a pretty broad section of the book of Exodus. We're going to cover Exodus chapter 5 all the way through Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to look at these, these 10 different plagues that God brings on the Egyptians to bring his people out of slavery and into the promised land. And so here's the big idea for today that we're going to talk about and discover together. The big idea for today is this, that God is both completely loving and completely just. God is both completely loving and completely just. You see, the, the passages and the sections of Scripture that we're going to look at today are honestly a little bit complex at times. Uh, honestly, they're a little bit heavy at times. Sometimes they're even confusing for us because we're going to see a picture of God that sometimes we struggle to see him as. We're going to see God loving, but we're also going to see the justice and the power of the God of the universe and how that gets played out. And for some of us, this can be a little bit confusing. Honestly, for some of us, this can be a little bit hard for us to sit with and to see God for who he truly is. And so before we even jump into the passages that we're going to look at today, I just want to kind of give some framework for how I'm hoping that we as a church and as a community can come to uh, this section of scripture that we're going to look at today. I just want to give us kind of two maybe guiding principles that we can have in the back of our minds as we look at these passages of scripture together today. The, the first piece of advice I want to give myself and all of us as we come to the scriptures, I'd ask that we come to it humbly, okay, that, that we would come to the Bible just humbly saying, God, instruct us and teach us about who you are. You know, so oftentimes, especially in our culture and in our world right now, we want to project our view of who God is, and we want to kind of tell God who we think that he should be. And so we shape God into our picture of who God is, rather than going to the Bible and figuring out who God says that he actually is. And, and when we do this, whether we intentionally do this or not, there's a little bit of pride in us that says, well, I get to kind of define who God is. You know, well, I like to think of God like this, so that must be the way that God is. I, I like to, to picture God like this, so, so that's who he is to me. But honestly, uh, even as nice as that may sound, when we come to God that way, there's a lot of pride. Or maybe even some of us, we've said things like this. And if you're in this boat, I want to just challenge you to maybe think about the, the, the validity of this statement. Maybe even some of us have said something like this. I would never believe in a God who fill in the blank. I would never believe in a God who judges me. I would never believe in a God who allows pain. I would never believe in a God, and fill, fill in whatever phrase you want to say there. Some of us have said things like that. I would never believe in a God that fill in the blank. And, and if you think about the reality of that statement, I can understand the sentiment of it. 
You know, sometimes there's things that happen in our world that, that are hard and that we have to wrestle with. But if you actually think about that statement, it's like God needs our permission, you know, to, to do a certain thing or to be a certain way. No, you know, God doesn't change based on what we think about him. God is who he is. We were made in the image of God. God isn't made in our image. And so I would just ask as we come to this text today, and there may be some things that are easy to understand. There may be some things that, that may be a little bit hard for us to sit with, that we would come humbly, that we wouldn't be tempted to put God into a box, that we would understand that God's ways are far above our ways and that we can trust his word. That's the second thing. So first, that we would come humbly, and secondly, that we would trust the Bible. If you remember back to our last series in the, the Goals series, we talked about the importance of the Bible for our church. And we talked about the reality that the Bible is something that we want to center our church on. And so what that means is that we teach the Bible, we teach the things that are easy and beautiful and wonderful to understand, and we teach the things that sometimes we have to wrestle with, and sometimes we have to sit with, and sometimes we have to let soak in to understand the complexity of who God is and who we are. And so those are the two kind of frameworks that, that I want to ask all of us just to come to these passages with as we dive in. Will we just all come humbly and say, God, I want to learn about who you are. I don't want to project my views onto you. I want you to teach me who you are. And secondly, will we trust that what God says about himself is true so that we can know him better and so that we can know ourselves better. And I think there's going to be some amazing, some powerful things that we can learn about God in these passages that we're going to look at as we look to the 10 plagues and the Passover today together as we continue on with this Exodus series. So that's some framework that we have set up. Let's jump in to this story. Exodus chapter 5 is where we're going to start off. Exodus chapter 5. We're just going to look at the first two verses here as we're getting started. If you have your Bibles, you can read along. There's notes in your handout. We have them also on our H2O app, or you can follow along on the screen behind us. It says this, Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so that we may hold a festival, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And then Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? All right, do you catch what's going on there? Uh, remember, people in slavery, God tells Moses, I'm going to use you. You're going to be the tool that, that leads my people out of slavery and into Egypt. So Moses, he takes his friend Aaron along with him. They get up the courage to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land, and say, God says, you have to let us go. God says you have to say, you know what, all two million of these people are allowed to leave Egypt and go into this land that God gave them. So Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. They tell them, they tell Pharaoh this, this thing that, that, of course, would have had to be a little bit hard to Pharaoh to hear. And Pharaoh's answer is something that I want us to take note of. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? That's the first point I want to look at. The first point is this. We aren't threatened by God. Oftentimes we're threatened by having to obey God. We're not threatened by the idea of a God or God. We're threatened by the idea that that God might have authority in our lives to tell us the way that we should act or what we should do. You see, you look at Pharaoh. 
He was in Egypt about 4,000 years ago, as, as we talked about when we were reading that verse. And during that time, it was a very polytheistic culture and society. It was a very pluralistic culture and society, probably fairly similar to our world during this day. And, and so during that time, the Egyptians had about 114 different gods, lowercase g, that they would worship during that time, right? And so the idea of a god was not at all threatening to Pharaoh. In fact, that was something that was very normal, very natural for them in their culture. But the idea that God would tell him that he had to let these people go, oh man, that was threatening. Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? In fact, Pharaoh himself thought that he was God. Most of the Egyptians during that time thought that, that the Pharaoh during that time had some type of, of deity, some type of power. And so Pharaoh wasn't offended by the idea that God existed. Pharaoh was offended that God would tell him he had to give up this precious commodity, these millions of people that were doing this labor for him so that he could honor God. And as we look at that reality that the Egyptians found themselves in, again, I think that it's probably pretty similar to all of us. Pharaoh was almost like this modern man. You know, sometimes we like to look at characters in the Bible, especially kind of villains like Pharaoh, and we like to say, oh, I would never act like that. You know, I can't believe that Pharaoh had such a hard heart, but I wonder if we're not that different than Pharaoh himself. You know, as you think about your own life, Oftentimes, again, back to thinking about the humility of, of viewing God through who he actually is rather than through who we want him to be. Oftentimes, we tend to be totally fine with God. We totally find, tend to be great with the idea of God, but we start to get a little bit squirmy. It starts to get a little bit harder to swallow. We're totally cool with God as long as he doesn't mess with our plans or our ideas of what our life should look like. But the moment that God starts to tell us that he might have a different plan than us, we start to get a little threatened, don't we? We start to, to have a little bit of a hard time swallowing the reality that we might have to submit our lives to someone greater than us. And that's what Pharaoh is finding himself in. In this situation, you know, we oftentimes we kind of believe and we, we we go to this myth that, that our world is just like progressively getting better and better and better. And so this happened 4,000 years ago. And so we think by then, certainly we've had to evolve as humanity, haven't we? And of course, we've made a lot of technological advances. Of course, we've we've grown in some ways as a society. But honestly, the root cause of every single one of our problems to this very day is the exact same thing that Pharaoh was dealing with 4,000 years ago years ago. The root problem that Pharaoh was dealing with is he wasn't willing to say, God, I will submit to you rather than submit to myself. And as I look at our world, as I look in my own heart, as I look in my own life, I feel like, man, that is so true, even to this day. Look at the pain, you look at the brokenness in our world, and so much of it is caused by that sin that we think our plans are better than God's. And so we, in essence, ask this question. Maybe we don't say it out loud, but we ask it deep within our hearts. Who is God? That I should listen to him. See, anytime we sin, anytime we disobey God, we're following in the footsteps of Pharaoh and we're saying, who is God that I should submit to him? And so as we start with that framework, we're going to see these 10 plagues 
unfold. In those ten plagues that, that God uh, lays out on the uh, Egyptian people are simply an answer to the question that Pharaoh asked, who is the Lord, that I should obey him. So let's jump back into the text. We're going to jump over to Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. It says this, But then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand, and he will let them go because of my mighty hand, and he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. Remember, that's how this whole thing started, as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I've been holding back for the last 400 years. I've been holding back in my mercy and grace. Verse 4, I've also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Cana where they will reside as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out of, from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with the mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring to you to the land I swore to uh, uplift your hand to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, and I will give you as my and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites. Check this out, though. But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. They didn't listen to Moses. See, here's the second thing. We have to trust in the promises of God even when they seem not to be true. We have to trust in the promises of God even when they seem not to be true. Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let your people go. Who is God? I'm not even going to trust him. And so what Pharaoh actually does is he makes the, the Israelites work extra hard. Pharaoh is ticked. He's angry. How dare you come to me telling me that I'm supposed to let people go? So he starts working the Israelites extra hard. And so the Israelites are ticked off at Moses because Moses is actually, from their eyes, making them have harsher labor and harsher conditions. And their life is getting worse because Moses is taking a step and a risk and a step of faith for God. You know, it kind of reminds me of something that happened to me in high school. We were, uh, I played basketball in high school. I've, I've told a lot of you guys about that. And um, at the end of every one of our practices uh, in, in basketball, we had to shoot foul shots. And so the goal was that as a team, we wanted to shoot 90%. So we would have to hit 9 out of 10 foul shots. And what our coach would do to make sure that, that we kind of got like real life, real game experiences is that if we wouldn't hit 90% as a team during the end of practice, we would have to run. We would have to run a line drill or a suicide where you run back and forth. And so some practices, um, we, would, we would go up to the line and, you know, different guys would shoot and we would zoom right through it and we would be out of there like, like that, you know. And those days were good days, right? And then some days we would go and we just could not hit a shot, you know. And so there are times where our practice was supposed to be over and it was getting extended longer and longer. And there were certain times where we'd be there for like an extra hour and a half just shooting foul shots and running. You know, all the athletes that are here, you guys can really 
relate to that. And it's just painful, and the longer you go, the worse it is. And so what our coach would do to make it even worse oftentimes is uh, he would stand the worst foul shooter out there, you know, and he would put him in the middle of the floor. And in my junior year, our best player was our worst foul shooter, okay? And so he would always make him be the last one to shoot. And so oftentimes we would be like eight out of nine. All this kid had to do is make the last shot, you know, and he would go up there and he would shoot and inevitably he would miss. And all of us would be like, come on, man. And we would start yelling at him and we'd be so mad. We'd get in the locker room finally after, you know, an hour of running and everybody would be mad at this guy, you know. It was kind of like when something bad happens, you need a scapegoat, right? And so we were mad at this guy for missing the last shot over and over again. We probably should have been mad at the coach for making us run, but we wanted somebody to be mad at because things weren't going the way that we wanted them to go. That's the, the position that Moses finds himself in here. You know, all he's doing is doing what God is calling him to do. He's going to Pharaoh. He's being bold. But man, the Israelites, they're not happy with him because their plan and God's plan doesn't look like it's coming together. And their, their conditions are getting worse and worse and worse. See, for the, for the Israelites during th- that time, it was so much easier just to keep the status quo than to trust in God's plan and God's promise. It was easier just to stay in slavery and keep the status quo than to actually trust that God was working and moving forward with the plan. I wonder about us. I wonder about us, like even right here, even in these moments, I wonder if we ever feel that way. You know, maybe we have promises from God that that we know are true about our lives, and yet we're tempted to just kind of keep going with the status quo, keep coasting in the direction that we're going, rather than do the hard work of trusting that God's promise and God's plan is good for our lives. Maybe it's a sin that we're fighting. Maybe some of us, we're in a habitual sin. And if that's you and you're here today, and maybe you're feeling shame and guilt and pain, man, we have compassion on you. We have grace for you because the gospel says you can overcome that sin, but you're not going to if you just trust the status quo and continue to drift into it. You have to fight for God's promise in your life that his plan for you to overcome that sin will bring abundant life and joy in your heart and in your house. Maybe some of us, it's like with our money. You know, and we know that God is calling us to be generous, but the status quo is just to keep living for ourselves and building our own kingdom. But we have to trust that God's plan is good for us and that when we follow it, that's where abundant life comes. Maybe for some of us, it's in our thought life. You know, we've not been able to discipline our minds to actually believe we are who God tells us that we are. And so in our thought lives, over and over again, we're ripping on ourselves we're saying things to ourselves that should never be said to anyone. And we're continually tearing ourselves down rather than saying, no, God says that I'm his child. God says that he loves me. God says that he cares for me. You see, as we look to this reality, we can trust in God's promises, no matter what the circumstances in our life may look like, that God is going to work together his promise through his plan for our life. And it's going to be so much better than we can imagine. The Israelites weren't quite able to do that. And so God intervenes, and he starts to do some miraculous things to bring about his plan. Exodus chapter 7. Let's jump in. This is the beginning of the plagues. 
verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding, and he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, and as he goes out to the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile, and take your hand of the staff that was changed into a stick, and then say to him, The Lord your God, (coughs) the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed to blood. Here's the first of the ten plagues. And the fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink, and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams of the canals, and over the ponds, and over the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood, and blood will be everywhere in Egypt, and even the vessels of wood and stone. And Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded him. And when he raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, all the water was changed into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. And blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians, they did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and he went into his palace and he didn't, and did not take even this to heart. There's the first of the ten plagues. And, and I want us to see this. Number three, God displays his mercy and power in the first nine plagues. God displays his mercy and his powers in, in the first nine plagues. See, the first nine plagues, and we're not going to go into every single one of the plagues here because, you know, we don't have all day. But the first nine plagues, they were really God just warning Pharaoh, something bad is really about to happen. Something really bad is about to happen, so you need to listen to me. The plagues, again, remember, the plagues were an answer to a question that was posed to God. Do you remember the question? Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Who is this God that you're saying you worship, Moses? I have 114 of them. Show me how great your God is. Show me why I should listen to him above anybody else. And so God says, well, I will show you. I will show you. And so he starts with this plague that, that, you know, the the river turns to blood. And then it it continues to go on. There's a chart that's going to come up here with with all the different ten plagues that that God... uh, unleashed onto the, the the Egyptians. It went from blood to, to a massive amount of frogs and then gnats and then flies and then livestock started dying and then boils started breaking out. And all the way up until the sixth or seventh plague, Pharaoh's heart just con- continues to stay hard. Nope, not changing. In fact, he had these magicians or the you know the, these people that somehow were finding ways to mimic what guy, like these David Blaine type people, you know, who are somehow like trying to find ways to make what God was doing in reality seem like they could do as well. And so each plague, God's getting more and more serious. God's getting more and more serious. You want me to answer the question, who is God that I should worship him? Who is God that I should worship him? And he's being patient and he's being loving and he hasn't harmed a hair on the head of a human and he's being graceful, and he's being merciful. 
the hail starts to come and people start to, to get belted and, and plants and animals start to die. And then Pharaoh starts to maybe change his heart a little bit. He starts to soften his heart and he asks forgiveness. And he starts to say, oh, okay, I'll let the people go. And then he changes his mind. Man, I can't let all this labor, this free labor go. Nope, nope, he changes his mind. And then, and then God sends these locusts. And Pharaoh does the same thing. Okay, God, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And then he changes his mind again. He doesn't let the people go. And then the ninth plague comes. Darkness covers the whole earth for three days in Egypt. And Pharaoh asks for forgiveness and says he's going to let the people go. And then he changes his mind again. And then God moves. From this God, his hand of grace and mercy being extended, and God extends his hand of judgment, the tenth plague. Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt, and every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at the hand mill and all the firstborn cattle as well. And there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt. Worse than that. Worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. And then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Then jump over to chapter 12. Verse 12, it says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt, and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Remember, answering a question, who is the Lord? I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign on your house, where you are, and I will see the blood and I will pass over you. And no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. See, God is telling his people, listen, even though I'm bringing my hand of judgment on the Egyptians, there is a way out for you. This is a day that you are to commemorate for generations to come, and you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. The Israelites did what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, and at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, to the firstborn of all the livestock as well. And Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without somebody dead. Like I said, pretty heavy reality that we're reading about here today. The fourth and final point I want us to talk about today is this. God displays his justice and his mercy in the Passover. God displays his justice and his mercy in the Passover. You see... Our God, as we learn about his character and who he is, our God is loving and gracious, but he is not weak. He is definitely not weak. And this can be hard for some of us to swallow because, again, we like to, to make this picture of God and we like to make him into who we want him to be. And here we see the hand of justice that God extends. But we have to come to this passage humbly, 
Because God's character is both completely loving and completely just. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes, like those of us who study the Bible or maybe been Christians for a while, sometimes we like to, to think of God almost as like this bipolar being. Like in the Old Testament, he's mean and wrathful and judgmental. And in the New Testament, he's loving and full of grace and kindness. And we think, oh, you know, that's the old harsh God. And the new God is loving. But God's love and his justice complement each other beautifully. The character of God does not change over time. God was just as loving in the Old Testament during this 10th plague as he is to this very day. And God is just as just as he was when he was unleashing this 10th plague as he is to this very day. God is powerful and his character doesn't change. You know, sometimes we have a hard time understanding justice, don't we? Sometimes we have a hard time understanding justice in our culture, in our world. But we don't have a hard time understanding or wanting justice when we see something really bad happen, do we? You know, like nobody has a problem with the idea of Adolf Hitler facing justice, do we? Nobody has any problem with that at all. Nobody has any, any problem with, you know, the, this, this guy, Nasser, who just, you know, abused a bunch of women. Nobody has any problem with him facing justice, do we? Nobody has any problem with this school shooting that took place, with the shooter who, who just so cowardly killed a bunch of kids. Nobody has any problem with him facing justice, do we? And so we understand justice. And we want justice, but sometimes we're not sure who actually deserves it. You know, the reality of that. But here's what the Bible teaches us. All sin deserves punishment. All sin deserves punishment. And sometimes we get confused because sometimes sin, it doesn't immediately bring punishment. Sometimes sin, it doesn't immediately bring death. But all sin eventually brings death. And so don't get God's grace and mercy and patience confused with weakness. All sin eventually brings justice. Because God is perfect. He's powerful. He's wonderful. He can't be united with something that is sinful. Here's a, here's a reality that we need to hear today. We all are more sinful than we dare to imagine. We really are. And that's not an easy thought to, to swallow, but it's true. We all are more sinful than we dare to imagine. But here's the good news. Here's the beauty of the gospel. We are more loved than we could ever imagine as well. So we're more sinful than we can imagine, but man, we are more loved than we could ever ever dream of and so god gave his people a way out from that justice he, he says take the blood of a lamb and put it over top of of a door and so when god sent this angel of death to to kill all the firstborn anybody who had the blood of the lamb over top of their doorpost the angel of death would pass over that's why we call it the passover and anybody that, that had this blood no matter who they were no matter how great their, their sin was or how great their brokenness was or how strong their faith was or how weak their faith was, anybody who had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost got passed over. 
And that is the beautiful news of the gospel for every one of us. See, God makes a way out for all of us. Even though we deserve God's justice, he says, I love you so much that I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sin and for my sin. And so just like that blood on the doorpost was a way for the, the angel of death to pass over and extend mercy and not justice, the cross of Jesus Christ is what every single one of us can look to and say, while I deserve the justice of God, Jesus made a way for me to come into a relationship with Christ and experience God's grace and mercy. And so as we look to the Passover, even though it's heavy and even though it's a reality check about the justice of God, it should point us to the beauty of the cross. It should point us to the fact that we get to walk in the wonderful forgiveness and freedom that comes from the grace of following Jesus. See, God loves every single one of us. The gospel isn't that, that God loves us because Jesus died for us. The gospel is God loves us so he sent his son to die for you and I. And so as we wrap up here, I think it would just only be fitting on, on a heavy topic like today to ask every single one of us have you received the blood of that lamb you know have you looked at your life and said God I realize I deserve your justice but I want to accept the gift of your grace through the cross of Jesus see the, the way to do that is to to look to God and to repent and to believe just say God I'm going to trust in you not myself and God, I'm going to change the way that I live to walk with you daily. Repent, change my mind, and believe, change the way that I live to truly follow God all the days of my life. And when we put our faith and trust in Christ, our life doesn't get perfect. We still have to walk through the trials that life brings us. But man, we have the freedom to know that we will be passed over on the day of judgment. And we will walk in the grace and love of Jesus Christ. That is open and available for every single one of us, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been. That's the beauty of the Passover story. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite us to do that. If we haven't done that, then I'm going to invite those of us that have to worship God.